We are starting, though, in Ukraine, where images are coming in that are just heartbreaking of people trying to flee and in some cases being killed, being the victims of mortar attacks on the way. And more and more talks as well about the humanitarian corridors and why those aren't working in a lot of cases. Joining us once again, though, is Mihailo Ozorovich, pastor at the Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in New Westminster. Thank you so much for joining us once Once again, thank you for having me today, Joe. When we last talked to you, we were uh, talking to you about uh, your your what you've been hearing from people on the ground. But we were also joined by Ola Heleniuk, who has actually since we spoke and gone back and is in Ukraine. Have you heard from him or been able to talk to him since he left? Yes, yes, of course. We were in touch uh, throughout his journey from uh, Vancouver to to Vienna, and then from Vienna on. Uh, on on a on a car ride to into Ukraine, and he has arrived safely into Western Ukraine, into his hometown. Has delivered all the supplies that he brought with him from here to the the warehouse, from where it's going to be supplied further. And uh, he's now uh, taking uh, active role in volunteering group there, and uh, and trying with logistics and, and helping those uh, people fleeing from other parts of Ukraine to get to Western Ukraine, and then. Uh, westwards to Europe. Uh, it must have been a great relief to speak with him and to learn that he had gotten to uh, Lviv safely, but it must also be very, uh, very concerning not knowing what's happening there. Yeah, uh, you know, following his journey was, was a great uh, 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 worry, but at the same time, the worry just began after he crossed there because he's, he's made a different, he's made a difficult choice to enter Ukraine and uh, pretty much not come back until the war is over. So uh, a great sacrifice and and prayers are now intensifying for him uh, after he has, uh, you know, crossed the border into Ukraine. Did he talk to you at all about what he was seeing on the ground and what struck him when he did cross the border as far as going back to Ukraine? He'd been living, for people who hadn't heard that, he had been living in Vancouver, in the Vancouver area since about November. Did he talk about his his shock at what he saw or what it was like when he did cross back into his hometown? So uh, we keep it positive. Mostly what we talked about is the amazing work that is being done in, in Poland and in Western Ukraine to help those fleeing the war uh, to escape and uh, the aid coming into Ukraine. So we focus more on the solution part of the equation, not, not the problem, because that is plenty on the news and everywhere, and we don't need to uh, add anything to that. So uh the 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 tragedy is is horrible sickening heartbreaking it's it's uh, devastating uh but the amount of 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 volunteers and uh, donations and sacrifice done by uh, you, you know people in Poland and and Europe is incredible we look on a refugee right refugee crisis over a million and a half they say crossed into Poland and there was not a single refugee camp one of the largest migration of refugees in such a short span and there's no refugee camps. You know, the generosity of Polish people, uh, the hospitality, openness of their heart, homes, uh, is just incredible. They, they were able to uh, take in a million people, over a million and a half of now, right? Uh, exact numbers, you don't know. And not create uh, a single camp and, and even fuss about it. People are just incredible. Amazing.
I, I know that you were born and raised in Ukraine as well. Have you been talking at all with family members or friends about what they still need or about those pretty amazing efforts, as you just mentioned, with people reaching out and trying to help? So uh, my parents are safe uh, for now in Western Ukraine. There's no active war happening there. My friends are, uh, again, safe for now. Some of them have enlisted because uh, they had military experience before that. So they are serving in the local uh, defense territorial defense uh, units. Um, so I, it gives me a lot of freedom to focus on the people who are suffering, right? whose relatives um, I had a good example is uh, one gentleman's father has joined the army and went fighting and he found out he doesn't have a helmet, he doesn't have a body armor and he's supposed to defend Ukraine. Uh, and, and that's not that the government doesn't want to provide. There is none available there. So we were working very hard and he you know, came to me and what if I buy it here? Can, am I able to deliver it to him uh, somehow you know, personally so he's protected? I mean, imagine a warrior of, of a son for his father who's picked up a gun but doesn't have a helmet and a body armor to to protect him so that's the type of need that there is still there just this morning we sent uh suitcases uh i think close to twenty thousand dollars worth of supplies that are not able to be purchased in 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 poland and germany anymore uh military medical um uh, equipment tourniquets and uh the, the wound closing uh bandages uh and so trying to deliver as much aid as possible and as quick as possible, uh, the need is, 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 is incredible. So, you know, from our local community here, we try to do the best we can. And unfortunately, I couldn't help that gentleman to, to promise that one body armor and one helmet could be delivered to his dad. Uh, and it's, it's a very tough uh, place for, for, for me to be. Um, but I do rely on Canadian government and uh, local distributors and manufacturers of body armor to strike a deal and give a blank permit of exporting those because they are available here. We just can't export them in big numbers. Um, do you think that would make a big difference then or, or at least a difference then if that change was made that we could export? Exactly, because there are there are many you know many people have donated generously not not just to our fund here local in U.S. Minister, but uh, across Canada, uh, if we could uh, supply though buy them here body armor uh, and and supply that to Ukraine, that would be very helpful. Imagine if if even with your be it ten thousand dollar donation, if you save one life through a body armor or a helmet, I, I think that's the most impact one can expect to make. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, we need to push for it uh, to happen as soon as possible. I know there are a lot of people sharing other ways of helping and people trying to find ways of helping. There was a fundraiser, well, several fundraisers this last weekend at Ukrainian churches where there were long lineups of people wanting to help. I've seen today a lot of people are booking Airbnb stays in Kiev with no intention of going there, but doing that so the money goes straight to families who have Airbnb rentals and as a way of getting money donated directly to people. What are you suggesting or what what more could people be doing, do you think, to help out? If you have any connections in Ukraine and, and family or friends that you trust, support them directly. Uh, you know, money transfers directly to them and they'll put those money to use already today. Uh, if you don't, find a charity that is close to your heart, uh, be it, uh, you know, a Catholic Near East West Welfare Association, be it Red Cross, be it 
Doctors Without Borders uh, and donate there. Uh, locally here in Lower Mainland, uh, come out to these fundraisers, be it pierogi dinners at your local churches, be it uh, rallies, uh, be it uh, any other organized event where there'll be plenty of you know, fundraisers uh, in that way. Donate your talent. Uh, you know, somebody... Um, uh, artists of newest minister just reached out and said we want to put out uh, organize an exhibition with our artists work to support ukraine and all that will go to to the help us help ukraine fund at our parish um if you're an immigration uh a lawyer consultant uh help us fill out documents uh for those who want to uh come to canada if you're willing to offer your your house or place of work for uh, those mothers and children coming to Lower Mainland, please contact us and, and we'll put your name into the database and reach out to you when they come. Um, and I think continue, uh, you know, praying and, and co-suffering with people of Ukraine. Uh, you know, gas prices will go up. Uh, everything else will go up in price. But realize that's a minimal price to pay for hundreds and thousands of lives uh, in Ukraine and uh, values and ideals of democracy, freedom uh, that we so treasure here in Canada. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us again. I hope to talk to you again soon with more about this. But thank you for your time and for those great suggestions. Thank you, Jill. Have a blessed afternoon. Well, with the high price of gas, you might be considering an electric vehicle. Maybe you're looking around or you have been for quite some time. If so, you may have found out that it can be difficult to find one. The demand apparently is so high that there are long waits to get these types of vehicles. Joining me to talk more about this is John Stonier, president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicles Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, great to be here. I'm guessing this isn't just recently because of gas prices, but how big of a demand are you seeing for electric vehicles? Well, absolutely. Right now, it's it's sort of unprecedented, but the demand for electric vehicles has been slowly building over the last 10 years. And uh, basically, you've always had to wait for a vehicle of your choice because there are limited production runs. Now we're 10 years in. I think we did 13% of new car sales last year were electric vehicles. Uh, and about a year and a half ago, we we started to see the the waits for for new vehicles starting to to get longer and longer. And what's happening in the industry right now is, as far as the industry is doing, they're trying to uh, catch up with production and demand. Uh, and moving those kind of supply chains is tough. And as everybody knows, supply chains have been disrupted anyway in the last few years. But now, uh, for about the last year and a half, it's been longer and longer to get uh, new cars, and it's got very much worse in the last just in the last few months and of course now that gas prices are where they are everyone's saying where can i get electric vehicle so it's it's uh it's a long wait right now anywhere from if you're buying the most expensive models you might be able to get one in a couple months if you're buying a model that most of us can afford uh you're probably waiting uh, up to a year uh, across most um car manufacturers Hmm. So if you're buying, so say, kind of at the top of the line Tesla, you might be able to get your hands on one, but not the more affordable vehicles? Yeah, the $160,000 one you can probably get in a couple <laughs> of months for Tesla. But all the other ones are still, you know, there's very good other other makes, uh, Lucid, uh, Rivian, um, a lot of other electric car makers that are still gearing up, and they simply don't have the production to deliver vehicles. So even if you 
did want to buy a beautifully made Lucid, it might take a few months to get to get here. So, And do you anticipate that's going to change at all and that somebody might think, well, what's better then? Do I get on the list now and get my car in eight months or a year or in eight months to a year from now? Is it going to be the same scenario? I'll just be getting on the list then, the, the list that's still the same length. So, uh, so better to do it now? Well, optimistically, it should be getting better faster. I mean, the entire supply chain is gearing up for electric car manufacturers, all manufacturers, virtually everyone now has realized that that's where the future is. That's where the demand's going to be. So they are building their supply chains, but um, <laughs> it's been an interesting ride for the last couple of years and then spe- specifically the last couple of weeks. Um, so, you know, I can't really say for sure, but the demand, the, the direction is certainly going electric. That's for sure. And how are we doing as far as keeping up with charging stations and that? Because I still see a lot of people commenting, saying they would love to get an electric vehicle, but don't have a charging station close to them, don't live in a building with a charging station, maybe have an older house with a garage or or not a garage. Uh, How are we dealing with with accessibility to charging? Well, in BC, um, the government has set the foundation for being way ahead of the rest of the world. However... The biggest problem for electric vehicle, potential electric vehicle owners today, is if you live in a condo or a rental building, no charging. Uh, and, and it's tough to get your council to, to approve these ex- expenditures. But the BC government has, in the last few years, at the urging of Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association, um, has put in some terrific world-leading grant uh, programs. The EV Ready and the EV Infrastructure Program uh, can provide up to uh, about eighty ninety eight thousand dollars in grant money to for a for a condo to convert and change you know build the electrical infrastructure required to charge basically a hundred percent at the end of the day it's going to be a hundred percent of the char- of the parking spots uh, need to be uh, electrified um, are and essentially eighty percent of the charging that electric car owners do do is from home so it's only when you're on the road you're traveling inner city or you're away from your home uh, home network is where you need to charge on a public station. So home, home charging is the priority. Another major thing that happened just in the last few months is effective January 1st, the low carbon fuel standard of British Columbia, which is unique to British Columbia. We don't have it anywhere else in Canada. Uh, it's modeled after the California low carbon fuel standard. They permitted um, condos for every electric, uh, every, um, uh, all electricity charged to electric cars can earn tax credits, or sorry, can earn carbon credits from the low carbon fuel standard. And the current price of transfer price of low carbon fuel standard credits in British Columbia is extremely high. It's almost $500 a ton. And when that translates to um, electricity prices, it's almost, you know, 40, it's currently as of Q4 last year, the transfer prices related uh, were basically 42 cents a kilowatt hour. This is an incredible incentive for condos to take the time, get a properly engineered plan, and go out and install infrastructure. So on that front, BC is way out front of any other jurisdiction. We are way out front, and I've talked to people around the world, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, even Norway, which is the leader around the world, um, we have some very good programs. So we're not there today, but we have the programs in place that we can really make a difference if we could buy the cars. (laughs) 
That's a big if, if you can actually get your hands on one of those vehicles. Absolutely. Now, used electric vehicles are a great option because electric vehicles are going to last a lot longer. They're not going to have, you know, you have a 10-year-old gasoline car. You're thinking, well, is the transmission going to go? Is it going to need complete engine rebuild? Whatever. With a 10-year-old electric car, which I have, um, it could be sold. And, you know, the only thing you really have to worry about is what the condition of the battery is. And the software check can tell you exactly what the condition of the battery is. I expect electric cars to last a very long time. And Viva has our own electric car ambassador, 112, 110-year-old uh, 1912 Detroit Electric. And it is in original condition, original motor. We've had to rebuild some of the switching on it and some of the wiring. Uh, and the batteries, the first battery pack only lasted 78 years. Um, but we, it's, you know, that is proof of pudding of how long um, electric vehicles are going to last. So a used electric vehicle is a really good way to get in. Now, same problem. As of about September of last, of last year, uh, the supply of used cars dried up. And the supply of electric cars, used electric cars, the same thing. So we're in the same dilemma is everybody wants one, <laughs> uh, but they're hard to find. And one other question about charging, because I have seen a few people using uh, the charging in their homes and and an extension cord to charge their cars when they're on the street, if you don't have off-street parking. Is that a a way that, is that a viable way of doing it or does it take a really long time to do that? Yeah, with the the size of battery packs today, uh, charging with a 110 outlet is an extremely long period of time if you're charging um, from empty to full. Now, if you're driving... 30 kilometers a day, like a normal, you know, the average urban driver drives about 30 kilometers a day. Well, that's not that much electricity. That's uh, maybe uh, five hours charging overnight. If you like to sleep eight hours, you're going to be fully charged in the morning. If you are commuting with an electric car and doing the high miles, and that's where the value is because it's so much cheaper to drive electric than to drive on gasoline. Um, then you'll need to have uh, what we call level two or the 240-volt equivalent charging to get enough uh, charge power going through to, to charge within a, a normal time of a few hours. So, uh, And then there's the public stations, which are our DC fast charge, 30 minutes, and you're basically 80% uh, charged and ready to go again. And one other question, this has been coming up with the high price of gas and with people looking at this as an option, again, if they can get their hands or get on the list to, to get a, an electric vehicle. Do you think there's going to be a shift? Because if, if once we do start sh- shifting that way, it's going to have an impact on the taxes that government brings in through gasoline. So uh, do, do you think there's going to be a way or a, a shift to even that out or that electric vehicle owners will have to make up that difference or, or will be taxed in some way to make up that difference? Oh, yeah, they will start at some point. um, Taxes will accrue to uh, electric car owners as much as any other car because there's we got to pay for roads. We have to uh, do that sort of thing. Um, I would suggest it'll happen through which other jurisdictions like Washington State have done. They'll start having an annual registration fee or it'll be mileage based when we have the technology these days to do that. And essentially, no electric car owner is going to uh, object to that, to paying their fair share. Um, it's so much cheaper to, to drive an electric car. It's, it's sort of, uh, we're all sort of pinching ourselves that we have our electric cars. 
um, did a calculation just the other day. It is in BC right now at uh, calculating at $2 a liter. It's seven times cheaper. It's one seventh the cost to drive electricity. So if, if electricity were gas, it would cost you 28 cents a liter. <laughs> and that's, I mean, so if I spent uh, maybe five or 10 or whatever um, on, um, on, you know, sub- subsidizing our road costs, no big deal. All right, John Stonier, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we've heard from the U.S. President Joe Biden has announced a ban on all Russian oil and other energy imports. He made that announcement earlier today. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in the Congress and, I believe, in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support their Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. This made, we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united. We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. But we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Rob Levy once again, CKNW business analyst, to talk a little bit more about this. Rob, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, nice to be back with you again, Jill. Uh, What's your response uh, from a business point of view to this announcement banning Russian oil and gas? It kind of looked like the way this was the markets uh, were moving anyway. We saw that when we opened up on Sunday night and oil prices skyrocketed to near $130 a barrel. Uh, And I think this is a story that's slowly been filtering out. It's now almost just become official. And the reason I say that is because we started to see some of these sanctions going to place, Western sanctions on Russia, and banks talking about limiting credit lines to companies that say deal in Russia and that kind of thing. So it's almost as if the wheels were already in motion and, and now it's just become official. Even with this announcement, you know, given another 45 days for, for companies to wind down trade. So say you bought you know, product and you're waiting on delivery, it's, it's not like you can't make payment and close on that contract or that kind of thing to sort of limit the disruption, so to speak. Uh, but this, these are the, the steps that are being taken, uh, not a full embargo on Russian commodities, but to begin the process to you know, l- limit Russia's ability to continue to sell their goods into an international market.
And when we look at the numbers, uh, the the U.S. importing about 200,000 barrels a day of Russian crude oil. But if you look at uh, the the bigger picture, so it's what is that about 10 percent of what the the U.S. imports every day? Is that enough that it's going to have an impact? I mean, it seems easier to see that having an impact on Russia than having a, a big impact on the U.S. But will it change things as well in the U.S.? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, gas prices, you know, already going to record high levels. And it's certainly something where I think consumers are going to feel the pain. And even here in Canada, because, you know, even though we can't, uh, um, even though we're not buying their commodities directly, we still we still participate in the global market. So so the price impacts still impact. And, and I think that's really the, the key story here is they talk about all the exports that come out of the Russian economy and Primarily, they go to Europe. It was something, as you said, you know, only 8% of U.S. consumption comes to Russia. 60% of Russian exports uh, go to the European Union. Uh, But it's still a a global price that determines, you know, where markets are. So we're still going to be paying more for energy, uh, whether we like it or not right now. And it's almost this conscientious choice that it seems many people are behind in Western worlds that, we're willing to stomach higher energy prices, even if it, you know, leads to what they call stagflation or potentially recession for a little while, uh, to to try and starve the, the the Russian economy, so to speak, and and limit them for how much of their resources they can sell into Western markets. And does it will it have an impact? Do you think on the Canadian market in that obviously there's no magical way to have more capacity in getting our product to the United States, but will it have an impact on Canadian exports? It, it, it will, and you know, hopefully, these are the conversations that begin to follow. Uh, you know, is making Canada again. Uh, you know, it, the the word I guess I'm looking for is strengthening that re- relationship, which already is a strong one between Canada and the U.S. Uh, you know, no matter where you look, it's already got people bringing up this Keystone XL pipeline, and even Kenny saying yesterday, you know, it's it's not too late. You know, maybe those type of projects are looked again with a second eye. You know, especially over the weekend when we had reports going out and it was U.S. brokering deals with Iran for two and a half million barrels of oil a day in there production to potentially bring online and they were even talking to Venezuela but you know it, it seems somewhat natural where Canada's already makes up 50 percent of uh, U.S. oil imports that they could play a bigger role in, and they're also going to look to domestic production so it, 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 it's all a part of the equation especially uh, you know with world energy supply and demand it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle because you know one piece comes out here and you know it's Ken has a potential long term to be made up somewhere else Uh, But it just in these kind of markets and and some of these systems that are sort of ingrained and in place, you see how easily and how very quickly it can be so disruptive uh, just by looking at the price action that we're seeing in the markets. Yeah, exactly. And looking at some of the prices in the United States, it was just yesterday. I know a lot of people here were talking about being able to go to Point Roberts and get cheaper gas. I mean, bigger picture, obviously, what's happening in Ukraine and and the the brutal uh, reality of what's happening on the ground there. But do you think then we will see, are we going to continue to see gas here, gas prices here related specifically to this continuing to go up? A hundred percent. 
a hundred percent because people, you know, before we were even there, were already talking about two dollars a liter gasoline, and, and I'm not a gas or, or energy expert by any means, but the trend is certainly going to be higher, especially we're going into a period of year now. Uh, we're early. I mean, it's only March, but you post May long weekend, you start to talk about the summer driving season where demand starts to pick up a little bit. So that already can lead to higher prices. And then you have a world that, as we saw almost going into this and, and, and prior to uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, it was people talking about commodity markets that were very vulnerable and there just wasn't the same sort of deply, uh, supply and, and future production that's being invested in in order to supply the world's demand for commodities. And then you had an event like we had over the last couple of weeks and it almost became the catalyst. Uh, so, you know, we need oil, uh, we need energy in order to fill our daily lives. And, and it's just not, there's not the depth of supply that there was say a decade ago and, and ready supply in terms of production. So that's why we see this such, you know, almost critical damage to the market here in the very short term. So I, I think, yeah, as consumers, you know, we're gonna feel it um, through the summer, but it, you know, from a political standpoint, the way the president framed it in the US it's an acceptance. I think people have come to terms with, you know, they, they, they very much from a political standpoint, support what's going on, support the Ukrainians in, in Russia's, you know, illegal uh, war criminal incursion. And I can stem paying higher prices at the pump because we're, we're willing to cut them off from the global economy. And the interesting point when you t talk about cutting them off from the global economy, and, and we have seen others doing this as well, but doesn't it really need to be a united front of countries doing that, joining and doing what the United States is doing or, or everybody kind of being on the same page to, to really make this successful in, in cutting Russia off and letting them know that the world is serious? It, it, it does, Jill, but I, I mean, there's really, I think, the challenge too. I, it, you know, it, and you know, without the European Union, it, it, what kind of difference can this actually make, uh, given how reliant they are on Russian commodities? And, and it's brought up, you know, so many different angles. Whether reverting back to nuclear power as they had shut that down, or the idea of even um, natural gas, liquefied natural gas, and then returning it into gas, where they bring it into uh, export terminals or import terminals. Sorry, along along the Ukrainian or the European coast there. I mean, there, there's there's different solutions, but unfortunately when it comes to almost filling our, our energy needs, nothing is a, a flick to switch uh, quick solution. And it's absolute pain and devastation in Europe right now because of what's occurring in, in, in all commodity markets, but particular energy markets. So, you know, we know they're not gonna move yet. And it's almost, I think why we saw oil, you know, rallied and then sold off a little bit here because of that reaction that, that Europe's getting a bit of a pass with this, but they've gotta be thinking about what's next or, you know, uh, how they're gonna turn with this because uh, of the implications, you know, continuing to buy uh, these goods out of Russia. And it, it, it almost in this market, in this Western world, it can't be a long-term solution. All right. Rob Levy, thanks again so much for joining us and talking about this. Appreciate your time once again. No problem. Thanks, Jill. All right, we are going to talk a little federal politics now. And as you likely heard in the news, Jean Charest set to announce his bid to be the next leader of the federal conservatives. And he's getting some support today. And joining us to talk more about that support is Tasha Carradine, a political commentator. Tasha, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, people will recognize uh, that name and know that you're a, a political commentator, see your writing uh, in many of the papers. But also, maybe you might be thinking, wait a minute, weren't you also considering trying <laughs> to lead that party? 
Yes, I was. And I spent four weeks uh, examining the possibility of a bid and talking to hundreds of Canadians and conservatives from coast to coast. Uh, it has been an incredible experience reconnecting and connecting with new people and organizers and just even people who've been in the party and have left it and want to come back if I were going to run and present the vision that I had. Um, but in the course of that, I also had conversations with Jean Charest. And I realized that um, we share the same vision and we're also going after the same people. So because of that, it did not make sense to fight each other. I would rather fight with him for an inclusive big tent party that we both want to see happen. And so that's why I decided uh, on Sunday, I, uh, my team gave him a call and he gave me a call back and that was it. Um, you know, I came on board and um, we're very happy to uh, work together. All right. Was there ever was it ever a back and forth in that maybe he would support you or you would support him and then that got worked out? No, we simply had conversations about, you know, where things were in campaigns and, and uh, you know, his, his reflection and then my reflection and, uh, you know, how things were, were evolving. I talked to all the campaigns, actually, of people that I know, both the, the candidates who are running and people in their teams, just to touch base. I mean, it's, it is a political family after all. Um, and so it was just, uh, you know, after four weeks, it's like business decision time, really. So it was either go forward or join his team and make the vision happen uh, with him as leader. And I think he will be an amazing leader. I'm very, very happy to be doing this. Uh, and again, he hasn't officially uh, done this, but we're expecting that on Thursday. Why do you think then Jean Charest would be the best person for this job? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, one is because he really believes in the need for unity, and he has a track record in doing that and unifying the party and also unifying the country. Um, he thinks that, you know, rightly, like I do, it's a bit of a tipping point right now, and there's a lot of things happening, uh, Western alienation, um, issues on the economy, issues of people feeling frustrated, obviously, with the pandemic coming out of that, but this need within the party, too, to build a bigger tent. That is the second thing that he wants to do. It's not just unify what's there, but enlarge the tent and make us a party that can win. He wants to build a party to win. And I wholeheartedly agree with that because you can't implement any policies unless you're in government. And, um, you know, fiscal conservatism, all the things you believe in, it's great to believe in them. But if you're not in power, you cannot actually make it happen. So he is committed to that. It seems, do you think there's a bit of a disconnect, though, or where do you think that the challenge might be in that I think a lot of people would agree with what you just said and that, yes, he could do very well in a general election. But on the same hand, there are there is also uh, this idea he could be eaten alive at a leadership race in the Conservative Party. So how does how do we or how do you deal with with how he's going to be treated in the leadership race? I think he's going to be treated really well. I think it's going to be a bit of a surprise, actually. I've heard that criticism, but, you know, he's got two challenges. One is to grow the base, which all the candidates have. Um, you want to attract new members that will support you, but in this case, also the vision that he has of a bigger tent party. So he has to grow the base between now and June 3rd. After that, it is a charm offensive, and all the candidates will be heading out onto the barbecue circuit and meeting all the other, uh, you know, the, the, the members that maybe were already members of the party, the pre-existing base, and explain to them why they should be their choice. And, you know, I've worked with Josh Ray uh, 30 years ago. Um, I, I know him extremely well. He is uh, an incredibly genuine, warm person. Uh, when you meet him, you really, he is affable. He, he connects with people. And I think he will be able to connect with the base um, that might mate now. Some people might be skeptical. I think he's going to win them over. So I think that second part, when it's the three months of, of 
you know, on the ground campaigning. He is excellent at that. And I think that he will he will succeed in getting a considerable part of the base as well. Uh, his opponents, as it stands now, will be Pierre Polyev and Leslin Lewis, probably mm-hmm. more candidates as we get closer. Maybe not, but probably more candidates as we get closer. Uh, how big of a challenge do you think are those opponents? Well, I mean, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And I think that, um, you know, Mr. Charest has a great advantage in that he has fought many campaigns and he's fought leadership campaigns and he knows how to campaign and how to drill down and connect with people, like I said, and get that message out. Um, and uh, so the other candidates have to, you know, leadership campaign is not new to Leslie Lewis, but it is new to Pierre Polyev. So they're going to have to, you know, compete with him on that score. Um, but I think everyone just really, I hope, shares the same goal of showcasing the talent that's there and not falling into negativity. I mean, we've already seen uh, quite a bit of that, and I really hope that it stops because it's not what the public wants to see. Uh, it might get people excited in the base or people for five minutes when they see a tweet out there of a particularly funny meme or something. But really, at the end of the day, politics should have a bit more dignity than that. And uh, I think that I would like to see this race elevate the tone as opposed to drop it. And I know Mr. Sheree will elevate the tone. And when you talk about the base and about what kind of a campaign or, or what he's going to bring to this campaign, even anecdotally, well, people that have been calling in this station and talking to people who have in the past supported the Conservatives, and I think things changed a lot also with some of the reaction to the trucker convoy in Ottawa. I, I've heard so many people now saying, I, I can't do it. I can't vote for this party. They've gone so far off in this direction. What am I going to do? How does Jean Charest address that? I think that's why he's running. That was why I was running, too. Honestly, we, we you know, both see this as a watershed moment. Um, he doesn't have to run. He really has a very nice life uh, outside of, of politics. He didn't have to leave that to come back. He's doing it because he believes, like I do, that this party's in trouble. Um, the country's in trouble. I think that there's this creeping American-style populism that is not part of our political uh, culture and not part of the conservative culture. And it is very negative. It is, is not a culture that builds. It's a culture that tears down. It's a culture of anger. And I don't think I don't like that in our party. I don't think there's room for that in our party. There's lots of different people with different belief systems in our party, and that's fine. Um, conservatism has always been about different stripes and the big tent and this kind of thing. But at the end of the day, you're all conservative. You're not this. This is, this is anger and grievance. And we don't need that. We need something positive. So how do you think the party got to this point where, where we are having this conversation? And like you say, this is why he's running, is to, to reel it back and to, to bring back these ideas and, and, and this, this party that, that so many people now feel very disenfranchised from. Well, there's been a number of, of reasons you could go into. And I think that one of them is a sense, I mean, we've had liberals now in power, Mr. Trudeau, since 2015, um, there's a backlash to the kind of style he presents and the kind of government he's run. And it has fed into this uh, populist wave, which has swept the globe. It just hasn't come to Canada in the same way. But when you look at um, what happened in the United States after the Obama administration, and Mr. Obama um, was, I would say, far more intellectual than Mr. Trudeau, but he also represented policies that a lot of people took issue with, like Obamacare. And you had a visceral reaction um, very unfortunately, I think, on on racism in the United States, which is a huge problem, which is a problem in our country, too, but it's a very different history there. And I think that there was a backlash that, that crept out, and Donald Trump, you know, he rode that wave, and is a wave of hatred, and I don't want to see that here. I don't want to see people reacting against new Canadians. 
I don't want to see people reacting um, and saying, you know, it's about uh, one part of the country against the other. We, that is not going to help us move forward. And so, you know, that, that piece, we've got to stop feeding it. And Mr. Trudeau has said it willingly or not. He has. Um, but at this point, I think we need to be grown-ups in the party and say, that is not what we're about. You know, pandemic is coming to an end, we hope, slowly but surely. Let's move beyond those questions, rebuild the economy, and focus on what really matters to people. All right. Tasha Carradine, thanks so much for joining us and to talk more about this. Uh, It's going to be interesting for the next few weeks watching this for sure. But thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you. I don't think we've ever played that much of that song on the show before, but there is a reason why Tim is playing that music. It is not because we're about to speak with Fred and Daphne. It's much, much more exciting than that. Monster Jam is coming back. It will be at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver from March 18th to the 20th. That's this month, and there are going to be so many great events taking place. And the truck lineup, well, the trucks go by the names of things like Grave Digger, Earth Shaker, Megalodon, and Jurassic Attack, and Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo is driven by Miranda Kozad, and Miranda Kozad is on the line with us now to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for taking some time. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, this is uh, just looks fun and terrifying and so many other things. How did you get involved with driving Monster Truck? So I've been actually involved in motorsports pretty much my entire life. Um, I started drag racing at a really young age, um, and I've won several championships, you know, through drag racing and everything. But I, I found my way to Monster Jam. Um, so, and I actually met one of the very first females in Monster Jam. Her name is Medusa. Um, and she took me under her wing and, and got me started in the business. And when you say you met one of the very first uh, females, uh, we, I, I didn't realize when we first uh, found out that we had this opportunity to talk with you uh, that it also falls uh, on International Women's Day. Do a lot more women do this now? Uh, yes. You know, um, Medusa, she actually really paved the way for a lot of us women um, to come into this sport. Um, there's, you know, there's not quite a few, There's, um, but there's, you know, a couple um, on my tour, um, me and Kaylin Miguez. She's also, um, you know, a female driver. Um, there's usually at least one or two on each tour. Um, more and more females are coming into um, into the sport, though, which is, you know, huge uh, success. So going from drag racing to driving a monster truck, what was that transition like? Well, as you can imagine, there is absolutely nothing like driving a monster jam truck. So um, it was it was quite a bit of a transition, um, learning, you know, a learning curve. But um you know, having the motorsports background uh, really helped me, um, you know, knowing how to um, use the shifter. And uh, the, the inside of the Monster Jam truck is actually looks, it actually looks a lot like the inside of, um, you know, a race car. So um, it's, it's not too much different, um, you know, how it's set up. How long did it take you from, if you remember first getting into the cab of that Monster Jam truck, how long did it take of driving it till you felt comfortable? Really, um, I would say, I would honestly say a couple of years to feel, you know, really comfortable and, um, you know, to, I guess, yeah, to be comfortable in the seat and, um, and confident in my, in my skills with it. And when it's, when you're out there and you're in that lineup with those other trucks, what is that like? Well, I'm a very competitive person, as you can imagine. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lot though. I mean, this, this tour is extremely competitive. Um, you know, there's some great drivers um, on this tour um, lining up, though. I mean, it's it's the best feeling in the world. Um, it's it's honestly me, my my complete dream job. It really is. Uh, I get to live my dream every single weekend, which is um, just the most amazing feeling and something that I'm very, um, 
you know, fortunate for. Do you get scared at points, though, or is that part of it? No, I would say that um, we get adrenaline rushes, Mm -hmm. Um, not scared by any means, but adrenaline. um, You know, if you don't have that, you know, fluttery feeling, uh, then you're not, you know, this isn't the sport for you because, you know, that is really what we live on is, is the adrenaline rush. And when you're out there, like you said, uh, you you have the role models and, and there's usually a couple of, of women driving the trucks, the Monster Jam trucks in these events. Do you think you get treated any differently by the other drivers? I do not. Honestly, we are on. You know, this is one of the very few sports that women and men compete on the same platform. So we are treated, you know, exactly the same. Um, I have the same amount of chances of winning, um, you know, as Grave Digger or Earth Shaker or any other of the other trucks out there. And when you see the fans, that's going to be one of the nice things that the event is back in person. There are going to be fans in the stands. What is it like when you're there and you see all of those people watching and cheering on, cheering you on? This is one of the, honestly, my absolute favorite things about it. Um, being in, you know, smaller arenas and everything, too, you can see people and you can hear them so clearly. We can hear everything in the trucks. So whenever we're in the trucks, we always tell them, you know, we can hear you guys get loud. And, and, and whenever we hear them get loud, it makes us, you know, drive harder, um, you know, go out there and give it our all for, for them. So that's one of the, um, the best feelings it really is. Have you ever crashed your truck or been injured? I have crashed it pretty much every weekend. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much, I think, in the job title. So, <laughs> um, But safety, I will say that safety is one of our, you know, the number one things in Monster Jam. Um, we have, you know, safety devices like a Hans device, helmets. Um, you know, we have fire suits and everything that, uh, that keep us safe inside the truck. That makes sense. It's got to be strange, though, or, or it takes a little getting used to when you when you take the truck and maybe you go over something, you tip over, or if you're upside down, that, that, that's, like you say, it's, there's an ad- adrenaline rush. But do you get more comfortable in those situations knowing that you are going to get out of it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like most of the drivers, we just get kind of, we get mad when we, um, you know, we want, we want cool saves. We don't go out there and intentionally roll over the truck. Um, you know, it's just, you know, the things that we do and the, the tricks and everything that we do, you know, that it always runs the risk of us, you know, tipping the truck, crashing the truck. Um, but I feel like we get more mad because we're just, we're all so competitive that we, you know, want to have those cool saves and, um, you know, not completely, you know, destroy the truck. (laughs) (laughs) Do you talk about it after about, oh, who got the most air, who, who jumped the highest? Do you compare notes after the weekend? Oh, we do. We, you know, we sit back and I mean, truly whenever um, my run is done, um, I'll go out there and I'll watch the other drivers. Um, You know, we, it's definitely competitive and we all want to win obviously, but we love to watch each other do well. Um, you know, I cannot say that, I mean, I, I've had the best, you know, support system and most of the, you know, my support comes from, from, uh, the other competitors, you know, they, they cheer me on, they give us, you know, um, kind of tips, you know, and tricks, you know, that we, that we can do out there. We all want to see each other succeed, which is, um, truly the best part. How do you win a monster jam weekend? Yeah. So, um, we, there's a point series that we're actually working for right now. Um, it's actually going towards the monster jam world finals. Um, that is one of our biggest goals is to make it to the monster jam world finals. I have not been able to, um, compete at the world finals yet, but that's definitely um, a goal for me for this year. Um, but to win, it's just, you know, uh, winning the, uh, I guess like occurring the most points throughout, um, each of the competitions throughout the weekend. Um, you know, uh, the first competition is racing and then it's the two wheel skills competition and then it's the donut competition and then the freestyle competition. So we get points out of how we place 
uh, during each of those competitions, and whoever gets the most points out of those um, will end up winning the overall championship. And what do you get if you win? Um, we get a big trophy. Nice. And um, like I said, too, you know, this is also um, we're also competing to go to the the uh, Monster Jam World Finals, too. So this is a uh, there's a lot at stake for us. Definitely. Oh, yeah. What was it like then? Were you able to keep up practicing during the pandemic when so many shows were canceled? So I actually um, was off for about two years. So this is kind of my coming back season. Um, I was not able to drive um, at all during that time. So uh, it, it took a little bit of a transition coming back into it, you know, and kind of, I mean, it was just like a bike getting back on, you know, I, I remembered how to drive, but, you know, it was kind of rusty at it too. So, um, you know, I'm just getting back in the groove of it. And um, yeah, like I said, it's riding a bike and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like second nature for me. It uh, sounds like it. And you mentioned too, going from race cars, driving the Monster Jam truck. When you drive just in every day, say you were just driving to the store for something, do you, does, does it take you a minute to kind of tone it down and remember, <laughs> nope, I'm just driving a, a regular vehicle on the street right now? I will say it's quite boring. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) I can imagine. All right. Well, I wish you all the best. It's going to be uh, for everybody that's missed these shows. It's going to be such a great show to see this return to the Pacific Coliseum. Thank you so much, Miranda, for joining us and talking about this today. And best of luck to you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be there, um, you know, this coming weekend. So.